0: Did you recognize me with a mask on? <laughs> good morning, everybody. Sure, good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you for the to the elders for uh, the invitation. It really means a lot that I can come and, and teach God's Word again to you. This church means a lot to me, and I have so many fond memories of of being here and worshiping with you. I've got a lot out of the worship service thus far. I hope that you have as well, and that we can continue that in this sermon as well. Please have your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And you can mark your Bible there if you have a marker. Go ahead and slip it there. We're we're not going to really turn away from it except to be in 1 Peter the whole time. But I want to read the text that we're going to break down this morning. It's going to be verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, become the, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter has a lot of different themes in it. It's a pretty diverse book. But the theme that Peter comes back to repeatedly almost ad nauseum to people who live in a very comfortable society, is the the theme of suffering. Allow me just to do a survey of the book just very quickly. Go back to chapter 1, if you will. Just read these verses very quickly. Verse 6 of chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God. We are rejected. He doesn't say we might be. Look at chapter 2, verse 18, verse 19, excuse me. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Drop to chapter three and look at verse 14. This was our scripture reading. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Look at verse 17, chapter three. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And lastly, chapter four and verse four. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. All of this is before the text that we read from verses 12 through 19. So you can see repeatedly, he comes back to this theme of hardship, trials, suffering, persecution, suffering for for what's right. It's easy to read 1 Peter in, in one sitting, and if you do that, you you find yourself asking yourself, why does he keep keep on coming back to this? But if you know anything about the historical context and human nature, you know why he's coming back to it. Number one, they suffered a lot of things in the first century. First, First century Christians, they were constantly persecuted, constantly told not to talk about Jesus, threatened, arrested, beaten, stoned, killed, imprisoned, all of these things because of Jesus. And the human reaction, the natural reaction when anything hurts, think physically first, is to do what? If you break your ankle, break your foot, sprain your ankle really bad, what do you do? Walk like normal? Go for morning runs? You nurse it. You get off of it. You get on crutches. You get on a walker. You get in a wheelchair. You do anything to stop doing the thing that's causing you pain. But spiritually speaking, that's not an option. If faith is causing us problems, if faith is causing us hurt, do you quit? Do you stop? And so when you combine the historical context of first century Christianity, and what just the natural human reaction is to just stop doing what's causing you the hurt. And if that's faith, if that's being a Christian, people are tempted to quit. And to the apostles' credit, they never did that in the book of Acts. They told the officials on on more than one occasion, you can make whatever decision you want, but we're not talking about Jesus is off the table. That's not an option for us. We must talk about him. But it was on the table for some. The New Testament is not just full of good examples. There are some bad examples of people who, who left being a Christian, left the faith, because they thought their lives were gonna be more comfortable, like Demas. Remember Paul's compadre? He left me, Paul said, having loved this present world. Demas was a quitter. Are you? The book of Hebrews, Brother Dave mentioned this at the very beginning during his, his announcements of how, what the, the book of Hebrews was written for. People were thinking about quitting the faith or going back to the Old Testament, which is quitting the faith. And why would somebody want to quit on Jesus, where our peace is, where our assurance is, where the hope of salvation is? Why would somebody want to quit on Jesus? Because they think that life outside the church, outside the faith, is without problems, is easier. That's avoiding where the pain is. But that's not an option. But because it is human reaction, you can can see why Peter would say, look, this is coming. This is coming down the pike. Be ready for it. But quitting is no option. The last thing that I'll say before we really start dissecting verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4 is that it is easy in a society like this where we are pretty comfortable is to say that passages like persecution and suffering for what's right really don't apply to us, but it does. I don't mean to be cynical. Maybe I've gotten more cynical since I've seen you last. Maybe COVID did that to me, but I'll tell you what COVID has taught me. There's a lot of local governments that aren't our friend. And you can bank that that's gonna keep growing. Just just look at what's happening in California. I understand that we live in a pretty conservative state. But the world is following the more liberal states. So just know that that's coming. But if the world can't take away your rights, you know what the world's gonna do? Make you feel embarrassed, shame you. Make you feel dumb for believing what you believe. Making you feel embarrassed and isolated, like you're on an island, like you're all alone. And that in itself is a form of persecution. So even though people aren't taking away our rights, and people, even though it's not physical, there there is a form of persecution that makes people feel ashamed and feel embarrassed and feel isolated. And we're experiencing that that now. And if I had to guess, if I had to, to make a prediction, that's going to be growing. It's more in in my generation than it was in my parents, and it's gonna be more in my children's. So these passages do apply at some level. So here's what Peter's gonna say in verses 12 through 19 about suffering. Number one, he's gonna say, don't be surprised by it. Expect it. Number two, he's gonna say, rejoice in it so that you can rejoice later. Number three, he's going to say, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you have the Spirit of God resting on you. Number four, he's going to say, not all suffering is somebody else's fault, though. You might be suffering because of your own sin, and you need to look in the mirror and and do an honest assessment of that. Number five, he says, don't be ever ashamed of the name Christian, glorify God in that name. And then he transitions into saying, these judgments, these sifting trials, that, as I like to call them, really begin and start with God's people, but the world, they're not exempt from it. That's what he's going to say near the end. But well, let's begin, verse 12, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though as so some strange thing were happening to you. I just had the chance to read a book about leadership about a week and a half ago, it was kind of a homework assignment through work, and it came highly recommended, it was actually a pretty good book, it's called 21 Laws, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I don't, I don't like leadership books or going to leadership councils necessarily or conferences because we serve the greatest leader there ever was. And everything about leadership applies in Jesus. But he made a lot of good points. And one of them was this. Everybody hates change. Is everybody, is anybody, do you know anybody that raises their hand and says, I love change all the time? Nobody I know likes change. Now, there are people who deal with it better and people who deal with it worse, but nobody really likes it. But you can get people to follow you better if they know what's coming, if, if, if you're setting proper expectations. Now, there are some always, you know, unexpected changes like COVID, you know, nobody can, can predict pandemics or whatnot. But if you can give people proper expectations, people always deal better with change. Now listen, the apostles didn't write any leadership book, but they were masterful leaders. And what are they constantly doing to New Testament Christians as they write to them, as they teach them? Aren't they building proper expectations about the suffering, about the trials to come? And so you find statements like Paul to Timothy, all who desire to live godly will be what? Persecuted. He's setting expectations with Timothy, and Timothy as a preacher is to go preach that. All who desire to live godly in this present age will be persecuted, he says. And then you have 1 Peter. We read all the statements at the beginning of this lesson. What's Peter doing? He's setting proper expectations. You have Paul and Barnabas going back through Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, where they had just taught in in Acts chapter 14, and it says that they were strengthening the the disciples, encouraging them to keep the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. By the way, that doesn't sound much like encouragement to me, strengthening, but it is. It's setting proper expectations of what to deal with. So, does it surprise you when you get put in a situation that's awkward, where you get put in a situation where you feel embarrassed? where people shame you, does that surprise you any? Maybe it's because we're not doing as great of a job in the 21st century of emphasizing proper expectations. The world is not our friend. We must love them, but they're not our friend. So don't don't be surprised by it. Number two, look at verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you, may be, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You know, when we talk about trials and hardships, normally what we quote is James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the text that we often teach from when talking about trials, and it's a good one. It says that positive things can come from trials. But that's not what Peter says here. What he says is rejoice when you suffer so that you can rejoice later when Jesus comes again. That's a rough paraphrase. But what's the point here? That if you suffer now for your faith, if you suffer for what's good right now, you're on the right track to rejoice later on. It is a sign of your legitimacy that you are a true child of God if you suffer now. And if you think that's saying it too, too strongly, take it up with the Hebrews writer, because in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, talking about discipline, talking about trials and hardships, only legitimate children experience discipline. Only legitimate ones. So if you're suffering now, it's a sign of your legitimacy. Take heart in that. Number three, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, he says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I could not find another verse that said those things. And maybe you can, maybe you know of one. And the Bible only has to say something once. I know some of you are thinking that right now. And that's good. The Bible only has to say something once. There you go, I said it. But I don't know of another instance. I know of instances like on the Sermon on the Mount that say that you're blessed if you're persecuted. But I don't know of another instance that says if you're persecuted or insulted that you have the Spirit of God. But let me flip the phrases because I think it makes it more powerful. If you have the Spirit of God, and all Christians do, if you have the Spirit of God, you will be insulted. Whoa, that that makes it a little bit more palatable, doesn't it? That, that makes it a little bit more easier for me to understand. If you have the Spirit of God, you can bank on the fact that you will be insulted. Hey, sounds like we're setting expectations. I heard a guy talk about that one time. Number four, not all suffering is somebody else's fault. This is, look at verse 15, First Peter 4, verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. This is one of those, and I'm not being disrespectful, but it's one of those duh statements. Why would Peter have to say that? Let none of you suffer as a murderer? Yeah, we all know that, Peter. You didn't have to put that in there. Let none of you suffer as a thief. Yeah, we get that. Don't steal or as an evildoer or as a meddler, but it's actually, you know, in the context what you can deduce was happening, happens in America too. And that is, people have this woe is me attitude. You know, they put the back of their hand on their forehead and say, uh, you know, I must be suffering all the time just because I'm a Christian. And not all suffering is in it, somebody else's fault. But you see this in America, it's called the victim mentality. The boss always picks on me. Well, maybe he picks on you because you're not doing a very good job. Is that that even a remote possibility? Law enforcement, they hate me. They're always looking for me. They're always looking down on me. Is it possible that you're breaking the law? And it sounds crazy, but people think like this. So have an honest enough perspective to look at your suffering and say, is this because... Of my own sin? Is it because that I've made a mess of my life? So as you hear people talk about, I'm in debt up to my ears, and my marriage is falling apart, and my kids are out of control, and this, that, and the other, and, and although we need to say it in love, and we need to lead people to these conclusions in love, it could be that we're suffering because of our own sins. And if that's the case, Peter says, clean that up. Well, let's, let's not have people say those types of things about Christians. And then finally, look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. I want you to underline in your Bibles, with a pen or a pencil or, or your mind, that word ashamed. Ashamed. In the Greek language, that can mean, and these are synonyms, embarrassed. Embarrassed. Remember what I said earlier? If they can't take away your rights, what can they do? Make you feel isolated, shame you, make you feel embarrassed, and that is a form of persecution. Don't be embarrassed for the name Christian. But you know, you know what happens when we're embarrassed and we get caught doing something embarrassing? What do you do? You stop it! It's the same thing that, you know, you break your foot, you, you sprain your ankle, you stop whatever's causing the pain. You stop whatever is embarrassing. Can I tell you an embarrassing event? When I was a kid, I loved to watch Rocky, right? Rocky Balboa. Any movie, any sports movie that has an underdog in it, you can bank that I've watched it like 50 times, Rudy, Rocky, Hoosiers, but I was watching Rocky one day. And evidently it motivated me because I went up to my room upstairs and I was boxing in front of the mirror. I'm like nine years old. I'm, I'm going to town, you know. I'm motivated. How could you hear that theme song? da 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 da, 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 da. <laughs> And not be motivated. But guess who catches me? My, my older brother who's like seven years older. So he's like 16. I'm like nine. And when, when you have an age gap like that, he has a license to mercilessly tease. So he's, he, he catches me doing the, doing the airboxing thing in front of my mirror, and, and what do I do? I immediately become red-faced, stop, and he just eggs me on. Now, that's funny, it's a funny story to think about me airboxing, but listen, I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations, at work or with friends outside of the Lord's church, where I could have stood up, I could have said something, I could have interjected, and I didn't. Because of embarrassment. The natural reaction when you're embarrassed is to stop. But that's not the direction Peter says. He says, don't be embarrassed about being a Christian. But that's not the end of the exhortation, is it? It's not just don't be embarrassed it's glorify God. So God, I glorify you for these awkward moments. Is that what we're supposed to say? I guess so. But listen, that sounds weird, but if we are in an awkward position, an embarrassing position, it's probably because we have the greatest moment right there to influence somebody. And that's why it's embarrassing. But if it's the greatest moment to influence somebody, that's worth glorifying God about. Now, here's what he transitions to. When you become a Christian, you sign up to be first on the testing list. You sign up first on the trials list. Look at verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I know I've heard it taught, and people think from time to time, and you may be one of them, that this term judgment in verse 17 is referring to the end time last day judgment. I don't believe that for a second based on the context. And if you get out your electronic concordance or your physical concordance, if you use one of those, and look up judgment, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of times the Bible uses the term judgment and like 98% of them are not talking about the last great day when Jesus comes again. More often than not, it's just talking about God's decisions. That's what judgments are, God's decisions and how He makes those decisions based on letting people go through tests, and isn't that the context, verse 12? The test, letting people go through tests, captivities, wars, and then letting those tests be his sifting mechanism to see what people are really made out of. But when you become a Christian, as I said just a moment ago, you sign up first to be on the testing sifting list. And it's always been like this. My favorite scripture to make this point is Ezekiel chapter nine, you don't have to turn there now. But God is giving Ezekiel a vision In Ezekiel 9, it actually precedes chapter 9, but this is found in in chapter 9. God says, bring out the executioners, and there's six of them. And they all have weapons, of course. They're, They're about to kill people. That's what executioners do. But they also have something weird. They have an ink pen, an executioner with an ink pen. And God tells these executioners, I want you to put a mark on the forehead of everyone who's bothered, grieved, by the idolatry in this city. Allow me to make a side point. Beloved, if you're bothered by sin, that counts with God, that counts with Him. There's not a whole lot I can do outside of my own family. I used to have my head in the clouds, think that I could influence everybody. Now, I'm much more realistic nowadays. There's very little people that I can have an effect on. But you know what? I can be bothered by the sin in this country and then the sin of my own lives and in the sin of my family members and friends. I can be bothered by it. And that counts with God. So the next time you, you grieve in your heart or are bothered by what you see around you, good on you. I'm serious. But back to this vision. God says you put a mark on everybody who's grieved by it, bothered by it. And then he says, I want you to kill everybody who doesn't have that mark. And this is what God says. You begin. You start in my sanctuary. It's always been like this, beloved. But if God is not going to spare the church from hurt, from trial, from hardships, from these judgments, if God is not going to spare the church, what will become of those who don't obey the gospel. You think God's going to let them off the hook? No way, no how. So there might be some some people in the audience, and I would guess that there is in a crowd this large, there might be some people in this audience who are thinking about leaving the faith. And I want to tell you, if you think the world is spared from trials and hardships, hard times, think again. It's just for different reasons. You just, they're just not experiencing it because they're a Christian, that's all. But life is not easier as an unbeliever. And this is how I interpret the next statement that's quoted. And, verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, unfortunately, this has been used to, to scare people in the church. Like people are barely going to get into heaven. They're going to squeak into heaven the righteous are going to squeak by and barely get in. I don't think that at all. Peter, in the next letter in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he says, if you're adding stuff to your faith and you're growing, an entrance into heaven is going to be richly provided to you. Does that sound like you're going to squeak in? And you might be saying, well, that's people who are adding to their faith. Well, 1 Peter 4 is talking about the righteous. No, no, no. I don't believe that it means that people are going to squeak by and we're going to be surprised. Like, how'd you get in here? You just going get in the back gate? No. Anybody's there, going to be there because they're clean in Christ. So, what does it mean? Scarcely can be translated with difficulties. If the righteous are saved with difficulties, with hardships, with trials, With these sifting judgments. If the righteous are saved like that. And God is not sparing them from that. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's the exact same point that he made in verse 17. Peter's just saying it twice. Back to back. In different ways. He's not letting the world off the hook. But we are first. We are first. So as America keeps Declining, you can expect the church to have the hardest time first. Expect it. And if everybody's going to go through these sifting judgments, you know whose side I want to be on? I want to be on God's side. And that's what he says in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word entrust there in verse 19 is a banking term. It means to deposit. Most of us have electronic deposits anymore. We don't go to banks to do that a lot. But I think most of us have or seen people walk in with a check, walk in with cash, deposit it, entrust it to the bank. So think about what Paul or Peter is saying overall in this context. If nobody is going to be exempt from these sifting judgments, if nobody is exempt from trials and hardships, we're just first on the list, that's all. I want to put my money, my spiritual money, my soul in the bank of the Lord. Because there's only one other bank. And, and I, I'm not trusting that one. But people do all the time. Please get out your songbooks and turn to the Song of Invitation. Put your soul in God's bank Right here, right now By confessing the great name of Jesus Turning away from sin And being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ God's promise is He'll take away all your sins Live in Christ Live with these good people Who are trying to follow Jesus Christ Will you come? As together we stand and sing